US Secretary of State Antony Blinken makes his first major speech on the shape of US foreign policy during President Joe Biden's first term in office. We'll have full analysis for you. In Australia, the curtains are raised once more on the country's theatres. We'll assess which lessons Broadway and the West End can glean from Australia's theatrical reopening. And in Brazil, Big Brother is watching you. And if you're a housemate on the current series of the reality TV show, the entire nation is watching you too. We'll hear why a once flagging TV format has captured the imaginations of TV viewers in Brazil during the pandemic. Monocle's editors and correspondents are here to discuss those stories today here on the Late Edition on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the Late Edition here on Monocle 24. It is Wednesday the 3rd of March and I'm Thomas Lewis. And joining us today from Midori House in London are Chiara Ramella, Monocle's Culture Editor, and Chris Chermak, Monocle's News Editor. Chris, Chiara, great to have you both with us on the programme today. Chris, you set the bar pretty high for yourself last week in terms of work week, speaking to former British PM Tony Blair and the current United Nations Secretary General. How's this week been? Has it been quite as momentous as the big week last week? Oh, I wish I could say that this was something we do, uh, you know, on a on a weekly basis uh, here at Monocle. Not not quite the case, I will say. It's more been now, you know, writing up uh, those interviews, preparing them. We're in our sort of final week of uh, of the April issue and uh, getting that, uh, you know, putting that to bed, as it were. So um, so it's really been focused. On that, reflecting on those those interviews. Um, otherwise, yeah, more just simple cheery news, like it was a wonderful Saturday in London to go for a walk and nice and sunny. Very nice. And Kiara, how about you? Is this turning out to be a momentous week? In terms of film watching, actually, you gave us some pretty neat little updates last week about the, the discoveries you've made of TV and film during this current lockdown in London. How's this week shaped up for you in that front? Well, I'm glad, Thomas, that you're keeping tabs on my uh, Netflix uh, watched list. Now, I will say also that Chris's comments there t- seem to, I guess, signal to me that he's a little bit worried about, you know, filing copy late. I think that's what we need to, to read between the lines whilst I'm sailing towards... Fretting. and Fretting <laughs> is the word. I'm sailing towards uh, the end of the production week, which are, what, what I think is a really excellent April lineup. I I must say. In terms of watching, lately... I've been really enjoying watching The Office US for my very first time. You know, perhaps that goes to my detriment. Um, But it's, you know, I guess we'll talk about the potency of, uh, you know, long lost uh, series and old formats in a bit. But sometimes it's just comforting to come to these things, particularly now, you know, I'm submerged by the potential new series that I could be watching any given day, and I'm expected to be watching them. And yet, here I am watching hour upon hour of The Office US, because sometimes you just have to take a break from work. What can I say? Can I just can I just jump in on that one and say, I don't know, for those of you who have Disney Plus has like dumped a bunch of new streaming content, and I've been enjoying Scrubs to go to go for that one, which is also feeling like going way, way back into the good old 90s for some <laughs> fun, fun viewing. 
all of your viewing needs catered for here on the late edition. Chiara Romella and Chris Jomak, brilliant to have you with us on the programme today. Well, we begin today in the United States, where US Secretary of State Anthony Blinken has delivered his first major speech on US foreign policy. And as Amy Pope of the Chatham House think tank in London explained for us on today's edition of The Briefing, the speech signalled a refocusing of US policy on the Middle East. I do think it's instructive to be looking at the Middle East. President Obama very clearly wanted to pivot to Asia and made that evident in his speeches and actions early on in his administration. But he was, again, pulled into the Middle East to respond. And I think that took over some of his foreign policy agenda. President Biden is going to face some of the same, what to do in Afghanistan, how to manage the relationship with Saudi Arabia, across the board, re-entering the JCPOA, which is the nuclear agreement with Iran. So watching how that plays out and whether that gives the new president and his administration room to really pivot to Asia, I think is important to see. Amy Pope there of the Chatham House Think Tank in London speaking to us on today's edition of The Briefing. Uh, Chris, you were watching the Secretary of State's speech today. What did he say, if you're able to sum that up for us, and what struck you most about it? Well, Thomas, what struck me, first of all, was Anthony Blinken's style. You know, he's not the most animated speaker. He sort of brings a seriousness back to foreign policy. He laid out this quite earnest eight-point foreign policy priority list with kind of much of what you'd expect, I guess, from the Biden administration. Things like tackling climate change, immigration, protecting democracy, a plan for dealing with China. But more importantly, I think what struck me was that he made an effort to connect with Americans about what foreign policy actually means for them in a way that I thought was was kind of quite unique. And, uh, you know, we have a short clip, I believe, that we can play here of that. More than at any other time in my career, maybe in my lifetime, distinctions between domestic and foreign policy have simply fallen away. Our domestic renewal and our strength in the world are completely entwined, and how we work will reflect that reality. So, Anthony Blinken was sort of quietly making this case against nationalism, I would argue, by talking both about why America needs to be engaged in the world and why that's a good thing for Americans back home. In that sense, it struck me as a new way of talking about foreign policy, sort of acknowledging the nationalist strands of policymaking today that makes nations and voters think about America first but then really linking every foreign policy goal uh, to things that are happening back home. And for me, that was most notable, for example, on trade, where Blinken was quite open that free trade deals in the past had not worked for Americans and that the Biden administration would do better to protect American interests. In terms of other priorities, he focused on the pandemic recovery, for example, but spoke about this too in terms of, you know, reviving the global economy and helping to end the pandemic globally uh, as necessary to provide benefits for American businesses and workers as well. He made a similar case in that sense for democracy as well, as a way to sort of, you know, protecting democracy around the world as a way to sort of take the fight to Russia and China, for example. So all of this uh, to say, I think that Blinken laid out maybe not a wholly new approach to foreign policy, but at least a new approach to the messaging 
around it. Um, and, you know, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see if that has any impact. And Kiara, to move away briefly from US foreign policy for a moment, yesterday also marked a bit of a setback for President Biden when the White House withdrew its nomination of Neera Tandon to the post of Director of the Office of Management and Budget. Tandon is now the first of Joe Biden's cabinet nominees to fail to secure confirmation in the Senate. And it seems her nomination was felled by partisan comments she'd previously made online. Yes, indeed. I think this is a really interesting question in the light of a broader conversation that we're having about the weight that, you know, past comments and and the use of social media can have on a person's career in broad terms. Um, I think there are lots of strands to unpack here. The first one, which Chris and I were talking about actually earlier today, is how partisan can you accept a cabinet minister to be. Does a cabinet minister need not to be partisan at all? Is that a requirement for the job? And also, can somebody be opinionated, be an activist and then move on to become a politician? Are those two things, um, I guess, completely opposite? I mean, I I read that some of these um, controversial statements and partisan statements that she has made were basically kind of low insults. Uh, she said that Susan Collin was the worst, that Tom Cotton was a fraud um, and things like this. I guess we have to think about the broader discourse and I guess the language that we are now very sensitive towards in terms of perhaps what we've been scarred by in office in the US. Does the fact that Donald Trump has used his Twitter profile to broadcast pretty low insults left, right and centre has that made us more sensitive to people's use of it in a similar manner? Do we expect better language and more refined opinions from elected officials? And is that the reason why this is so problematic? But I would also move that forward and move that a little bit broader in terms of, you know, how we understand Twitter and social media as a platform for people to use. You know, ultimately, I think... There's a there's an assumption that just because something was published on your Twitter feed or it doesn't necessarily coincide with your public persona and it doesn't always, you know, that retweeting doesn't mean endorsing or, or that the views expressed by one single individual on Twitter do not necessarily reflect their organisations. All this is very fine and well, but I think we need to understand that posting on Twitter is not posting on Dear Diary, you know, that the fact that, you know, your personal opinions on Twitter should be something that you would be comfortable saying to a national newspaper as well, particularly if you're a public persona, you know, if if you wouldn't give that quote in an interview, don't write it on Twitter. And I think what's most remarkable about this this whole situation is that she then went on to delete the tweets from her account, therefore clearly being aware that they were problematic. And also to a certain extent, you know, tampering with evidence if you want. There's clearly a bit of... Uh, you know, a fear there. And it's been said that she's not been the most forthcoming in terms of transparency. I mean, that is an issue because if you have published those statements and if you really truly do believe in those statements, then there is no point deleting them at a later stage because, as we all know, that kind of thing tends to backfire. So 
I think it's it's a very multifaceted discussion in terms of what we want our public elected officials to be. Do we want them to be non-partisan? Do we want them to say non-controversial things? And is that because we've been scarred by the large discourse around us? Or have we just lowered the bar and now we have come to expect this kind of discourse from our politicians? And so it becomes, you know, astonishing when somebody is punished for saying something that feels not quite as elevated as perhaps what we would expect from public office. Well, next here on the late edition, the curtains have been raised once more at theatres in Australia. And on today's edition of The Globalist, Matt Wolfe, who's the theatre critic for the international New York Times, explained how Australia's theatrical reopening is being watched closely by the world's major theatre hubs like Broadway and the West End, and how in the long term it could shake up the hierarchy of when and where major new theatrical productions debut. The traditional rollout of a big show, you know, a big musical or a play like Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, which is now on in Melbourne triumphantly, is that you had London and then New York and New York and then London, and then you did Australia. Australia was, internationally speaking, the third stop. What's happened now is that the order of events has been completely upended. Australia has become the first stop for shows to reopen and get sort of a perch back in the world, as it were. And Broadway and London are looking to Australia to see how can it be done? Will audiences go? Is it safe? And so on. And then New York and London can take their cue from the country that used to come last and now is coming first. Matt Wolf there, theatre critic for the International New York Times, speaking to us a little earlier today. Kiara, this idea of the, the hierarchy of where big new productions open, that idea was interesting to me. And I wonder whether you agree that theatre sectors that have perhaps relied on, on hosting hits from elsewhere have been a little bit further down the pecking order historically for big new shows, whether they will now climb up the destination list, if you like, longer term for new productions, and what long-term impact do you think that might have on, say, the Broadways or the West Ends of the world? Well, I think I'm coming to you with a bit more of an international perspective, I would say, you know, because um, precisely when you say the Broadways and the West Ends of the world... You really have to look at it outside the Anglophone lens because in the Anglophone world, this might be the pecking order of where big show productions have been travelling. But, you know, I'm Italian and we wouldn't really necessarily care so much about what shows were on in the West End because they wouldn't really travel to Italy, not in the same way as they do between the West End and Broadway. I think there are loads and loads of different theatre worlds in, in, across the world and, and touring is hugely important within those linguistic groups obviously because um, a theatre show is something that exists within that linguistic group so you'll see francophone shows travel between Belgium and France and, and German speaking shows travel between Germany, Austria, Switzerland and I think really there What I find very interesting is how easy is it going to be to tour within these regions with coronavirus restrictions? And, you know, looking back at the UK, it's impossible not to mention the issue of Brexit. How much will, you know, shows be able to travel in the same with the same ease? With with the with the current situation we're looking at, and with uh, with the cost of getting equipment and sets across the border likely to really rise, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. I think what will last 
you know, for, for a long time after the pandemic, is perhaps a reassessment of where the roots of the cultural industries lie in your own country uh, and whether the, the, the industry is self-sustaining and how much you have to borrow from other countries in order to feed your stages be them theatre stages or cinema stages as well. How um, you know in in countries like France, there is a huge amount of French-made films that are showed in the cinema, and likewise for Italy. Um, how much have people been uh, relying on syndication from other countries in 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 all manners of cultural production? I think that's. I'm not. You know, I'm not advocating for a more kind of autartic uh, approach to cultural production. That's not what I think. And I don't think that's what will benefit the cultural world ultimately. I do think that it's very important that culture continues to be shared across borders. Don't get me wrong. But I think it's also important for countries to have a bit of this reckoning moment and, and question themselves and wonder if they are sustaining their own their own homegrown cultural scenes as much as they can. And Chris, to take a little bit of a leap from the traditional theatre context to the theatre of politics and diplomacy, there are several big in-person diplomatic meetings coming up this year, big climate summit in Glasgow in Scotland and the G7 meeting in Cornwall in the UK. Do we know how the preparations for those events are going at this stage to ensure that they can indeed go ahead in person? Thomas, I think it's an excellent segue to go from the travelling circus of theatre to the travelling circus of politicians. And uh, I do think, yes, it's fair to say that diplomats and world leaders are, you know, really as eager as any of us to kind of get back into the world and uh, meet in person. You know, these summits like the G7 often seem rather, you know, stuffy and scripted affairs to the outside, to us, to us watching, if you will. But, you know, on the other side, the personal relationships that are developed at these summits do actually matter between world leaders. Um, and they can really make uh, such a difference, I think, in diplomacy. And so, to put it simply, one of the ways they're preparing is delaying a lot of this. So the G7, you know, is going to be in June Boris Johnson has said that more than anything, he wishes that he will be able to welcome leaders to the UK by then, you know, and he's he's held this sort of, he held an initial G7 summit a couple of weeks ago, a digital version uh, of that, where, you know, he had to ask Angela Merkel to please mute her Zoom call uh, during the opening remarks, and it just showed how challenging these kinds of things can be. He's hoping to be able to welcome people to Cornwall, obviously, a uh, key element of this is going to be vaccinations when not only all the world leaders, but their staff, um, everybody that travels along with them will hopefully have received a vaccine by June. That's also a time where, you know, Boris Johnson hopes that the rest of society um, will have eased, you know, the lockdown will have eased in the rest of the UK as well. So a lot of it is just a timing question and... I just add, you know, it is it is quite quite key. This is something that they're really gearing up for in the UK. Also because it's just, you know, these summits are really something of a feather in the cap of a world leader and even for that matter a chance to attract tourism to to showcase something good about 
your local economy, which again has become, you know, even more crucial in this time after a year where people have not been able to travel that much, you know. And for me personally, I remember at the time of the last uh, financial crisis in 2008, 2009, I went to Pittsburgh for a summit of the G20 there, and that was also sort of befitting the moment, a story of a town in revival, an ma old manufacturing town that had managed to reinvent itself and reinvent its economy. And so now, you know, Boris Johnson has picked Cornwall as this example, not only for its craggy cliffs, as he said, but for its renewable energy industry and for the new key spaceport that's that's there and things like that to sort of showcase um, a, a positive side of the UK and what it's capable of in the energy world and in the technology world, which, of course, even more so uh, with, with Brexit and sort of looking for trade relationships and economic revival in that sense is going to be absolutely critical for the UK. So, uh, yes, they're, they're preparing, they're doing what they can to prepare at this moment, but really it's a bit of a waiting game, uh, frankly, for now, for the next few months to see. That's even what, frankly, Joe Biden uh, has said or the White House has said about whether uh, Joe Biden will go to Cornwall for the G7 in June. It's a decision they'll make in the next few months and hope that things are looking, uh, looking good for it by then. Well, finally, here on the late edition, the reality television programme Big Brother was a format that was flagging in Brazil as viewers in fewer and fewer numbers tuned in to watch a group of strangers living together 24-7 within the confines of the Big Brother house. But the pandemic, it seems, has changed that. Large numbers of TV viewers in Brazil have tuned in to its current series, which is currently airing, drawn to it by the themes the contestants have brought up during their time televised confinement. Monocle 24's culture correspondent Fernando Augusto Pacheco explains. This year has been very controversial. They are talking about race, sexism. So to be honest, you think it's lighthearted, but actually it's not that lighthearted. And I even have a, an interesting quote. You know that my second degree cousin was the winner of the seventh edition of Big Brother. I'm, I don't have a big relationship with him anyway. But this year, uh, my favorite contestant is Sara. I think she might be the winner as well. But yeah, talk to any Brazilians, they will know. They might even say they hate it, but they're still kind of checking out the show as well. Fernando Augusto Pacheco there on the Brazilian version of the Big Brother reality franchise, which has struck a chord in Brazil during the coronavirus pandemic. Chiara, are you surprised that a fairly well-worn TV format in so many TV territories around the world has managed to capture what seems like a very contemporary set of public moods in Brazil, that it's, it's an old format that's resonating anew? Well, the easy answer to that question, which is obviously the first thing that came to my mind, is that clearly there is a relatability aspect to Big Brother right now. Uh, perhaps the sense of confinement has inspired people to watch something that doesn't make them feel quite so, I guess, jealous of other people's experience. Um, but I think that in some ways, uh, tried and tested TV formats can be the arena for really important conversations to happen um, because they have the established viewership and perhaps also a more traditional viewership because if they have been running for quite such a long time that allows for these conversations to reach a public that perhaps wouldn't be having them necessarily. It just skyrockets a conversation into the, into the mainstream and that can generate a lot of conversation around it. I mean, 
Only today I wrote for the Monocle Minute, which will appear in tomorrow's um, inboxes for people, uh, about Italy's um, Song Festival of San Remo. This is a festival that's now in the 71st edition. It's been going on for ages and it is a very traditional format and our listeners who are also keen watchers of Eurovision perhaps will know it as I guess the the initial inspiration for the format of Eurovision and it used to be a very traditional show where the kind of the old crooners and the melodic songs of, you know, Italy would be shown on stage and, uh, you know, pretty kind of blatant gaffes would be carried out by quite cringeworthy presenters. And there is still a lot of that in today's show. Um, but people do feel a sense of kind of national identity around it. And the fact that it is so established has allowed for it to be a platform for quite radical you know, uh, conversations recently, only last year. There was a huge sexism row uh, surrounding the fact that the main presenter said a few remarks that clearly didn't put women on the same footing as him. And on stage, we've seen people in really kind of gender binary pushing outfits in the last couple of years in a way that has, you know, presented the Italian public, an Italian public that perhaps wouldn't necessarily come to this show for this kind of conversations, just confronted with these kind of issues. And these issues in turn have, you know, really, really helped popularity of a well-worn format. So I think the one thing perhaps stimulates the other in quite a virtuous circle. And I would hope that that is the case also for the Big Brother in Brazil. And Chris, it's always intriguing to me when a format, be it a TV show or a live performance or a radio broadcast, seems to sort of tip over or tap into something else, something other than that which was intended. Are there any other examples of that that have sprung to your mind uh, while we're considering the, the soaring popularity of Big Brother in Brazil on this occasion? Thomas, for this end, I'm going to show a very geeky side of myself um, because I've been <laughs> re-watching, or not, watching for the first time Star Trek Deep Space Nine over the last uh, months uh, in, uh, in lockdown, as it were. And the reason I'm mentioning it is because there is a, a set of episodes that has actually gotten some very relevant play all of a sudden, again, from an article that was uh, written just in the last few weeks. And this was an interesting episode called Past Tense um, back in 1995, um, where basically you, they, the, the crew travels back in time to the 20th century and witnesses these sanctuary districts, as they're called, where homeless people are sort of kept, um, kept inside, kept away from the rest of society, as it were. And it's done as this episode that really is is about sort of the links that we will go to take people who are different from us away from our own society and it's a, it's it's actually in general um been a bit surprising to watch something uh which felt quite escapist and still feels quite escapist for me to simply watch a sci-fi show like Star Trek Deep Space 9 but with an African American as the head lead captain in the show who actually has some very poignant moments when it comes to race in society, the role that race plays in society throughout the show. So in that sense, it's felt surprisingly relevant to today's times. 
Well, I know a format that I wouldn't change at all, and that is Chris Chermack and Chiara Ramella on the late edition on a Wednesday here on Monocle 24. Thank you very much to the two of you for being with us on the programme today. That is all for today's late edition. A big thank you too to Sam Impey in London, who edited today's programme. The late edition returns at the same time tomorrow. But for now, from me, Tomas Lewis, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you soon.